Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. The scriptures say, Let us consider one another to provoke one another into good love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to bring a lesson today regarding the teaching. I have cut my teeth as a gospel preacher, if you will, uh, defending scriptural observance of the Lord's Supper. I have nothing to regret about that. However, as I am often doing, I'm planning ahead and thinking ahead as to what I'm going to be teaching next. It dawned on me that though I've often taught about Sunday school and why the Lord's Church does not follow uh, the general popular thing to do and have Bible classes or Sunday school, I've never dealt with it in an entire lesson. I've never devoted an entire lesson to a study of that particular issue. It seems that in the years just before the turn of the century, from the Civil War to the First World War, the church was pretty well in a constant state of confusion regarding the mode of teaching. Some very sophisticated arguments were presented for and against what we today call the Sunday school or Bible class or youth group, or perhaps we use other names and monikers. It seems the disagreement has developed over time as to what an assembly of the church is and as to who may teach in that assembly. Probably the best place to begin this study, though, is so is to des describe and define exactly what an assembly is. And to do that, I want to use an excerpt from a book written by Brother Jerry Cutter, in which he, which he titled, The Teaching. And he said, and I quote, In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we read, And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the, whole, with the church and taught much people. People are to be taught, not entertained in the assembly. In Acts 15, verse 6, we're informed of how the apostles and elders came together to consider a spiritual matter. This matter was considered in the presence of all the multitude. In verse 12, when the people came together, the word of God was so taught that those who were unlearned or who were unbelievers and attended were convinced. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23 and 25. Thus we learn that the purpose of the assembly is to teach the people, to consider spiritual matters, to convince the unlearned and unbelievers, and to edify the body. When teachers function properly, all learn, and all are comforted. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31. Also, the Christians assembled every first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper and to give of their means in the contribution or the collection, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, the passage chosen for our text very plainly commands an assembly. There's no way to get around it. To abdicate from that assembly for any but a God-given, God-specified reason is sin. If we take care to note other passages regarding the assembly, we begin to learn and begin to put together that it is God's divine will that a congregation does not divide itself into multiple assemblies at the same time. Now there's examples for this. And if you will recall a few weeks ago, we studied through 
a series of lessons on authority. And examples, binding examples, was one of the chief ways of authority that we talked about. An example, by definition, is an instance serving to illustrate a rule or a precept to act as an exercise and application of that rule. An example serves to illustrate how to obey a commandment. The church was commanded to read the epistles to its members. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, Now when this epistle is read among you, see to it that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Now these are commands. Commands given by God because they came through an inspired uh, apostle. In, first, in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, we begin to see pictures, word pictures, of how these commands were carried out. Examples that illustrate how to read in an edifying manner to the brethren. Acts 14, verse 27, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And Acts 15 and verse 30, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. They came together into one assembly. We find no instance anywhere in the word of God where churches, congregations, ever divided into multiple assemblies, into classes to read the epistles. We find no example at any point anywhere in the Word of God where elders specified a demarcation, a division of groups of people in the congregation with a sister reading here and a brother reading there without any supervision to read the epistles to the class. The epistles were commanded and the example is that they read those epistles before the entire congregation. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, readily parted on the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. The disciples came together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? Verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. Again and again and again, we see in scriptures the admonition to come together. There's three critical points to notice in these passages that we've just hurried through. The church is to come together for communion and to stay together for communion. All the members must be together because it's necessary to wait for one another. Now, on what I understand of the scriptures at this point in my life. If we have authority to divide the assembly for the teaching, we have authority to divide the assembly for the communion, for the Lord's Supper. But many congregations today do things quite differently than what we see in the scripture. They divide the assemblies, usually divided by age without any regard to Bible knowledge or our need, spiritual needs for the teaching. Sometimes 
even insisting that young believers miss adult church so that adults can receive adult teaching and children can receive children teaching, but then they all come together for the Lord's Supper. I ask you, if it's wrong to do one, why isn't it wrong to do the other? It is wrong. An undivided assembly is taught, secondly, by necessary inference. Many inferences are made by people when they read the scriptures. We understand that in our society today. Unnecessary inference is an unavoidable question that must be drawn. The rules of 1 Corinthians 14 force readers to draw the unavoidable conclusion that an undivided assembly is the only way that the church may assemble people together for public teaching. Let's read a small portion of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, and I encourage you at some private moment soon to read this chapter carefully and slowly, perhaps to read it through two or three times so that we begin to understand and remember about the assembly. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31, 33. For you, all, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as is the churches of, as in all the churches of the saints. Notice carefully, all the teachers have the opportunity to teach. How? By dividing into classes and all teaching at the same time? Not according to the examples given. By insisting that they all speak at one at a time, Paul implies that the church comes together and stays together until the church is dismissed. This would have been the perfect place for the apostle to write, some of you have messages for children, calling for children, ministry to children, so separate yourself off over here and teach a class of children to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. Some of you have messages for mothers. So you take all the mothers in the congregation and you go off over here in a little corner by yourself and teach the mothers to love their wives, uh, love their husbands, and to love their children. Some of you have messages for husbands, for the men of the house. So you go teach the men how to love their wives, how not to provoke their children to wrath. It's significant. What Paul did not say when he was given instruction requiring the church to remain together in one undivided assembly for the public teaching of the Word of God. So what exactly is Sunday school or Bible classes? Where did these things, this thing originate? Given the huge following that they have in our day and time, one would think that they must have originated in the Word of God. I believe having a tremendous amount of experience in the Sunday school system, I can serve as a voice to describe what the Sunday school is in our day and time. Things have changed since I left the denominations. So my understanding may be a little bit skeltered, but... I have very recently come out of the church, denominational churches, so I believe that my understanding of Sunday school is very close to accurate. I remember being sent to Sunday school when my dad pastored a little, 
a little denominational church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We would have filed in about 9 o'clock every Sunday morning, and about 9.15 or 9.30, the Sunday school teacher would get there. And about 9.20, I would go downstairs and help her set up the cookies and soft drinks that we would all enjoy while she was giving her flannel graph lesson. Flannel graph, I think, was the ancient form of PowerPoint. I quickly rose to leadership position and was serving as Sunday school superintendent by age 15. My class was always the largest, and I had many conversions in my class through that medium. But was it right? This was and is, as far as I know, in all the denominational churches. By age 18, I was teaching the adult class and serving as assistant pastor and Sunday school superintendent of the churches where my dad pastored. Until I became a Christian and the Lord added me to his church, I never questioned Sunday school. I believed that it was right, and I believed that it was necessary for the teaching of our youth. Here's what Sunday school is, or Bible classes. It's the same thing by a different name, that's all. Sunday school or Bible classes are a division of the local congregation, generally along the lines of age. Never in my experience have I ever seen it divided by any other way than by age, without regard to knowledge or spiritual maturity. It is rarely, never have I seen it properly supervised. More often than not, it does very little to actually increase the spiritual knowledge of the students of members of said Sunday school. Very often the material taught in Sunday school is printed and distributed by a general office in some faraway city and then sent, mailed out, probably emailed now, to the local congregations. And usually... It is never reviewed until late Saturday night or early Sunday morning in preparation for the Sunday school class. Usually, the pastor, the leaders of the congregation, do not know, do not pay any attention to what is being taught. Now, this is based on my experience and viewpoint in the denominations. My experience after leaving the denominations and becoming a member of the Lord's Church is that the multiple cup Sunday school class groups are not much different than the denominations. They operate very similarly in their use of their treasury and very similarly in their use of their organization, very similarly in their use, I believe, of Sunday school and of Bible classes. The question is, for our consideration today, at some point in time later, we'll get into the history of it. Where is the Bible authority for this? As we've noticed already, the scripture commands congregations to come together. At no point in time does it ever command or illustrate congregations dividing themselves for admonition or for worship. There's not one command, not one example, not one inference for the division of a congregation. The absolute 
and utter silence of the scriptures on this matter should be sufficient for us to avoid it completely and to avoid any terminology that may resemble it. So we consider an exhortation from silence now. The scriptures clearly teach that when God is silent about a practice, that practice that is under consideration is forbidden, unauthorized, without authority. In other words, God was being silent on purpose. This is called legislative silence. It's when the law is purposely silent about an action, and that silence is viewed as expressing the intent of the lawmaker. Silence means the absence of both explicit and implicit teachings. The absence of explicit, this is plain, this is direct commands, are obvious examples. And implicit, things that are implied, things that you have to think about or gather a huge amount of scripture to understand. Implication is not silence. Implication is authoritative. When God implies something, he's not being silent. True silence is the absence of all explicit and implicit teaching. Now, God was not silent about the tools that Noah would have to use for the ark. God commanded him to build. He knew it was implied that he would have to use tools. God is not silent about church buildings being permissible because he commands us to assemble. God is silent about musical instruments in New Testament worship. He never implied such. God was silent about individual communion cups in the Lord's Supper. He never implied such. God is silent about the church using Bible classes to teach the scriptures, whether it's teaching youth, children, young adults, old adults, or married adults, or divorced adults, or grieving adults, or whatever. God's silent about those divisions. Understand how silence works from these examples. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now Hebrews 11 verse 4 reveals that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Contrary to modern opinion, faith is not blind. Faith is obedience and, and cooperation with what has been revealed. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. The necessary conclusion then is that Abel and Cain were instructed by God regarding the sacrifice that they were supposed to bring. Abel brought what God commanded. Cain brought something that God did not command. Silence forbids. Silence forbids. Because God did not command what Cain brought, God was angry with Cain. Look secondly in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. 
Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This is based on silence. Listen carefully. The fire that was offered by Nadab and Abihu was never authorized. It was profane. That's what that word means. They were forbidden from using this fire. How were they forbidden? Did God say, don't use profane fire? We can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament, in the Old Law. Did God say, use, do not use fire from this place or from this place? No. What we do have is positive injunctions. Use fire from this place only. And everything else, God is silent about. because And it is forbidden. Simultaneous classes with women doing some of the teaching or without women doing some of the teaching are forbidden by the silence of the scripture. Jesus nor the apostles authorized such. They did not authorize Bible classes explicitly. They did not authorize Bible classes implicitly. There is complete and absolute silence regarding simultaneous assemblies of the church or of the congregation coming together in multiple assemblies. In order to disprove the conclusion of the study, all one has to do is present proof from the New Testament scriptures that simultaneous Bible classes are authorized either explicitly or implicitly. The problem is it cannot be done. If there is silence, then we learn these things cannot be used. God only not only teaches by what he says, he also teaches by what he does not say. If someone asks for authorization for a Cumberland assembly, such could be found in our text, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. If someone asks for authorization of a plurality of Bible classes, of teaching going on in the same congregation in different places at the same time, it cannot be found. Silence always forbids. It cannot authorize. First Timothy chapter 2 is believed by many to concern, contain instructions regulating assemblies of the church. I believe that this is a mistake. I believe that this is wrong. I understand this chapter is dealing with the conduct of men and women in any public setting, not in just worship assemblies. For instance, women are forbidden in this chapter from being public teachers of the word. Women are forbidden in this chapter from being public teachers of the word. In any forum, in any setting, when it comes to teaching the word of God in public, women are to be silent. Look with me, if you will, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This forbids sisters from teaching in any public assembly 
in any public capacity, this is not just talking about when the church comes together. Let's look at the context to understand this more clearly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Where are men supposed to pray according to Paul's wish? Everywhere. Not just in the assembly, at home, at work, driving down the road. Men are supposed to pray. Men are to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Just in the assembly? I think not. I don't think that the scripture, I don't understand the scripture gives us permission to be doubtful or to be wrathful even outside of the assembly. This is speaking about what men may do everywhere, not just what they can do in the church assemblies. Two words are translated man in the English Bible. One word means mankind, and it can be used generically, including all of humanity, both male and female. Another word means a man, the male, the, the male gender of the species, not conversely the female. Verse 8 in 1 Timothy chapter 2 uses the second term, talking about men only, Discuss, discussing specifically what men can do everywhere. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Let's flip the card around and talk about the women. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. If we follow the common understanding today, we would have to apply this passage of Scripture, which exhorts women to be modest at all times, to profess godliness by in all things that they do and in all things that they say, only in the assembly. It doesn't work that way, does it? Our sisters are to be modest in the way that they dress. They are to be clean-cut if you will, in the way that they dress, proper for women professing godliness with good works. In contrast to men, women are to constructed to clothe and conduct themselves modestly and with shamefacedness, shamefacedness. Now listen carefully. Christian women are never to be the center of public attention. Christian women are never to be the center of public attention. That obviously means a woman's not supposed to stand up here and lead a song, wait on the table, or deliver a Bible lesson. That also means that our sisters are silent in the governance of the congregation. While the men are remiss if they do not take counsel from their sisters who may see things that men miss the sisters do not get to vote on what happens and doesn't happen women are not to be center stage in the operation of the congregation they're not on stage performing and attracting attention to themselves this does not glorify them 
It does not glorify Christ. This passage in discussing conduct is discussed in conduct in public, not just conduct in church assemblies. If this concerns only conduct in public, then a woman does not have to dress modestly in private. That's right. That's a very common argument that people who argue against modesty argue. And that is right. The way a woman dresses herself, adorns herself in the private company of her home with her husband is nobody's business but hers and her husband's. Shall we argue that 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 and 10 is discussing conduct only in a church assembly? Does a woman have to dress and act with discretion only in church assemblies but not on other public occasions? The entire context of 1 Timothy 2 is dealing with public conduct and not only church assemblies. Let's go back to where we started. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. This passage gives us three pieces of information. A woman may not teach in public capacity. She may not exercise the authority of a man. And a woman must learn in silence with subjection. This is why it's wrong for a woman to preach on the radio, on TV, or on Facebook, or at a PTA meeting, or some other place like that. Women are not to be public teachers of the Word of God. God has reserved this role for men, for men only. However, in public, women are to dress and conduct themselves modestly so that they are not the center of attention, not to stand in public and address an audience, in other words. So why does God require women to be silent? Not just in public, church assemblies, so to speak, but in public capacity completely. Why can't a woman in public teach, ask questions, or translate the scriptures if that situation comes up? Why must they remain silent? Because God reserved the office of teaching for the man. Verse 13 and 14, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. People may not like it, people may disagree with it, but these are the reasons that a woman cannot teach publicly. Now, what we have when we talk about Bible classes, in most places, it's like our congregation, there's more women than there are men. And so, if we have Bible classes, a woman has to teach. Or perhaps there's men there that are not able for one reason or other. And so a woman has to teach. There's no authorized example of such a thing as a woman teaching the Word of God in an assembly of the church.